There's nothing like a pandemic to make you question your place in the world. Whether you define this as your city, your species, or your smaller-than-you-thought living room. What happens when the routines that keep many of us too busy to notice the very small or contemplate the very large are suddenly upended? One realization might be something the philosopher Emmanuel Delanda called a flat ontology where easy assumptions about relative importance give way to a deeper realization that everything matters, even if it matters in ways we often struggle to understand. Hi, I'm Marika Trotter. I'm history and theory coordinator and faculty here at SIAR. This podcast is about contemporary architectural issues and attitudes. It's organized by theme, which means that we have the option to connect unexpected things together and maybe rethink just by juxtaposition how we approach things within architecture, but also how architecture approaches things outside of itself. This episode is about flatness. We start with an examination of what flattening the curve would actually look like in a sustained way. Hint, it goes all the way to the top. I'm here with Megan Hallbrook, who is a doctoral student in infectious disease epidemiology at UCLA. She earned her BA in medical anthropology from McGill University and an MPH in infectious disease epidemiology from Columbia. Prior to UCLA, Megan worked in microfinance and at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Her research interest is focused on the anthropogenic factors that drive disease transmission, specifically surrounding food culture and habits of hunting, agriculture, and marketplaces. What was it like for you, Megan, when you first heard about COVID-19 and you realized that it seems likely that a source for the disease was some food habits and potentially the way that we trap and then consume various types of wildlife. When I first heard about COVID-19, and there was a theory at the time that the point source came from a market in Wuhan, uh, I really wasn't too surprised. It was definitely my sort of running hypothesis of how a potential pandemic, a pathogen of pandemic possibility would would come about. I think it wasn't really until it started spreading outside of China that I was sort of awakened to the fact that like, oh, this is it. It's not just what I learned and or what I kind of said I expected to happen. Here's something that you've been studying, perhaps more in the abstract or through data. And then it sort of, it, it comes into being in a very palpable way in your own school, in your own neighborhood, as it spreads around the world. I think what's surprised me the most for people who work in infectious disease epidemiology, uh, we call it zoonoses, which is when a virus has the possibility to jump species from animals to a different species of animals or animals to humans. Even having it be my profession sheltered me from the shock of, oh, dang, like <laughs> there's a virus that's circling the globe that's really dangerous. And, and it started exactly how we kind of thought it would. But we've seen examples of zoonotic transmission of viruses spillover based in marketplaces, obviously other coronaviruses, SARS and MERS. But, you know, mad cow disease is an example. There's classic examples that don't ever spread. Nipah virus in Malaysia was one. So this certainly isn't the first, but it is the most successful. So when you start to look at how these kinds of viruses become circulating in the human population, what are, what are the origin stories there? 
So when we look at the origins of viral spillover, it really is happening on what we call like the human-animal nexus, which is populations that are living closer to animal populations that not necessarily more rural because these can be urban areas. Generally, we're seeing cultures or occupations where you have higher contact with animals, either because you're a farmer or you get your nutritional subsistence from hunting. And that's been the case for most of the modern outbreaks. They weren't all pandemics, but, uh, and for coronavirus, there has not been a species yet that's been implicated as usually the reservoir is, the reservoir species is unaffected by the virus. They are just kind of passive carriers. And when they come in contact with other animals, um, and humans, of course, are animals, it can spill over and it can infect the other animals. So when you know the reservoir host, you're able to, you know, mitigate spillover events, either by educating people who interact with that species or, you know, it's impossible to eradicate a species. The earth is just too big. It's a like a long hunt. There are people out there, there are researchers out there whose entire life's work is just getting as many little blood samples from as many animals as possible to try to find evidence of a reservoir species in. In areas where there's distribution issues, for especially with protein, um, I think that's kind of one of the most consistent nutritional issues around the globe is how to get adequate protein. We look to hunting and it's one of our, you know, traditions as a species and it will never change. No one will ever decide to go hungry just because the scientists told them that they might get a virus. Um, and so the only thing to do is to create, to understand the risk, the statistical risk, the probability, the health effects, and to educate and create and do surveillance essentially, which is testing these populations and also create enough of a health infrastructure out in places where people are interacting with animals that when someone gets sick, the you're able to find out about it. That's so interesting. The need to get access to adequate protein, as you said, is to the spread of these kind of viruses and these kinds of diseases. Is it n never the case that an agricultural society would uh, maybe entirely basing their nutrition off plant sources would be susceptible to these kinds of things? Is it really about species to species, animal transmission only? There's not to my knowledge, any viruses that would jump between plants and humans. Although of course there's bacteria and we've seen when we move it to like monocropping or industrial farming of plants, we have other health problems that arise. We like so issues with the soil, like E. coli is our forever plague here. I'm wondering what kinds of what kinds of changes and new adaptations should we as a largely urbanized species be considering in the context of this new knowledge that now not just people in your specific field, but now it seems like all of us have had to become much more aware of the kind of environment that we're in, the physical constraints of the environment, how the air is circulating through, uh, what kind of pathogens might be living on surfaces, et cetera, et cetera. I think sort of there's a lot of noise right now as everyone is trying to protect themselves, wiping door handles or putting up plexiglass, you know, in terms of how we can manipulate the built environment around us. Um, personally, I think a lot of it 
is not necessary. It's maybe more a Band-Aid solution, looking at how can I, you know, fix this one small moment because the bigger issues that I, that I think contribute to pathogen spread and zoonotic spillover are, are really, are much more like wicked problems and a much, are much harder. So some of the biggest drivers of zoonotic spillover are climate change, deforestation, urbanization, like the consolidation of everything into one spot. And that's really why this is happening and why it's happening at higher frequency than, you know, in ever in history. So I think people get really hyped up about Clorox wiping their takeout or putting up plexiglass between you and the supermarket worker. But really, that's small potatoes and sort of the science behind why you you know, it's called fomite transmission when we pick up germs on services. And the science behind fomite transmission uh, for coronavirus exists sort of in the scientific possibilities, but it's not very strong. I, you know, 5 million Americans didn't get coronavirus from a doorknob. They got it because of human person-to-person transmission um, and like masking policies. And so I think there's right now, there's specific undue focus on these very small scale interventions. And I think that's sort of one of the most interesting things about where the role architecture can play in how we can reimagine these bigger scale interventions, like, you know, how humans operate on earth. As we've been talking within my own field of architecture and urbanism about this unprecedented situation that we face, there's been a lot of head scratching about density. So density has been the mantra for all urban theory and what makes cities desirable and what creates strong culture. And, you know, it's been the unquestioned good. And it's interesting to think about that specifically American tradition of light density in the context of something like this and wonder if that might not be a different model that we might need to reinvestigate. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think, you know, I live in Los Angeles and the idea of there being sort of a um, a centralized oasis in the city is has been a, like a big problem and a big source of anxiety, you know. So where can we go? I can go Griffith Park or the beach. Everyone's there. And so the pandemic has really made you realize that in within your neighborhood, there's maybe not as many places to go outside of your home. And so we've been trying to kind of carve out this idea of decentralizing even, you know, our city and finding places in our own neighborhood where other folks won't be. It definitely makes you realize that it would be nice if there was more parks. Yeah, it makes me wonder if we could, It for me, it really hits home when I think about public schools being closed and the the kind of um, period of time in which public schools in uh, Los Angeles were pretty much all built with a very particular uh, type of architecture and very particular, these big flat paved spaces, and then very kind of small clusters of classrooms and things like that. And it makes me think, Wow, you know, if we we have such a, such a mild climate here, it wouldn't work everywhere. But here in Los Angeles, how interesting that we find ourselves with so few resources. It's not a dense city, and we do have the ability to be outside a lot of the time, and yet here we are all huddled in our homes, you know, trying to 
um, homeschool our kids via Zoom. And people are even trying to figure out how to walk their dogs and without you know being too crowded next to each other. Restaurants are struggling because there isn't a strong uh, allowance in the public space or in in even the the kind of courtyard space of the city for them to do outdoor dining. And, and, and it really points out to you how different the city could be and how much more sustainable we could make it just by reimagining what we, how we divvy up in interior space versus exterior space. Yeah. A habit that's changed of mine going to like major supermarkets. We have relied on them a lot less because at the beginning of the pandemic, they were just, we all remember how crazy they were. The lines were insane. There was nothing on the shelves. Inadvertently, just in an attempt to so be socially distant from everyone. We ended up starting this hyper-local lifestyle. I find that that in these times, here we live in LA, which is supposedly a city in which you must drive. And yet driving has become almost entirely optional in my life anyhow. It is, on the one hand, it really makes you focus on your neighborhood and the good parts of it and the not so good parts of it. Of it. And as you were saying, you notice a dearth of certain things like pocket parks or adequate sidewalk space or even maybe a sense of kind of a civic sense in your neighbors and in the community. But on the other hand, that focus I think could be really beneficial to the building of a different sort of city where it's not about going far, but it becomes about staying near. And staying near, you have to find a way to make it a richer experience. You have to find a way to make life worth living in a smaller in a smaller patch. Yeah. And if we think about health outcomes outside of just like viral threats and global pandemics, localism and improving communities is a proven method for supporting other kinds of health, chronic disease health, nutritional health of communities, and much to say about health architecture and in communities in terms of how encouraging walking and or mobility generating activities. Can I ask you a potentially extremely annoying question? <laughs> yeah. What about herd immunity? Yeah, herd immunity is herd immunity is a scientific construct that it represents a statistical ideal for vaccination rates. So the idea is that Depending on how infectious a virus is, you need to, there's a formula, but you need to vaccinate that many people in order to sort of protect the greater good. And the reasons why you'd want to do that is that there are people who, because of underlying health reasons, are unable to get vaccinated, but you still, you know, you don't want them to get measles. And so if we can vaccinate 98% of the population against measles, we will be good. There won't be a measles outbreak. And so that's sort of how herd immunity gets used in day-to-day kind of epidemiology. There's a lot of talk about if we can only, if so many people can get infected with COVID, then we'll have herd immunity and it won't spread, which technically is, is entirely true, right? The virus won't, the likelihood of the virus finding another host is low when if everyone is large percentage of the population is not susceptible anymore. But there's two main flaws with that. Um, And this is kind of the method that Sweden has adopted. Last I checked, they were sort of just aiming for herd immunity. You know, whoever gets lost to COVID, you know, be damned. That maybe is okay in Sweden, but we have such gross inequities in our country that it wouldn't be random, right? It's not gonna be random who gets COVID. It follows racial and economic lines. And so you're really just sacrificing the poor and you're sacrificing 
black and brown people so that white people can be safe. And that's grossly unacceptable. And then the other thing about herd immunity is that it, it, it relies on the idea of neutralizing antibodies. Once you get sick, you're for many things, but not all things, your body produces antibodies. So that way, next time you encounter that virus, your body knows what to do. And so you're able to almost not feel sick or feel a minor sickness because you're able to produce you know, the kind of cells to combat it. Your immune system act- activates faster. And so for many things, you confer antibodies for a lifetime. Some things you don't, which is why we have booster vaccines. So right now with COVID, we really do not understand the antibody response and how long those antibodies last, if everyone gets antibodies or not. For example, if you're asymptomatic or you have mild symptoms, do you produce neutralizing antibodies for a lifetime? If you were super sick on a respirator, will you? And so if, let's say, for example, that you get antibodies, but they only last like three months, and this does, and for influenza, we obviously can get it every year. So that would be an example of a virus that we already understand produces your antibodies can wane. If we, we would only have herd immunity for three months and then we would be back at square one. And so we don't know enough about the science to put all our eggs in that basket. You know, one of the silver linings perhaps of experiencing a pandemic like this firsthand is that it really makes you aware of the ways we do and do not care for each other and the ways that we do and do not care for other species and other ways of being on the planet. Um, and I think that if we if we had more literacy when it comes to the way our lives are so inextricably tangled in other things and other lives and even other semi-alive things like viruses, we might actually have to do some radical recalibration of how we imagine um, our lives should be what they should look like, what our spaces should look like, what our urban places should look like, what our agriculture should look like. It begins to just infect everything, pardon the pun. Yeah. So like what you're describing is sort of a, in public health, it's called the One Health Movement, which is really unsiloing environmental health research, veterinary medicine, and like human public health, and realizing that for most things, it's you have to have sort of like a three-part Venn diagram understanding of the problem from environmental factors, sort of animal engagement factors, human factors, to really truly understand all the forces at play for any individual topic that you're interested in working on. But it, it also is a profound challenge, I think, to the way that we typically think about disciplines and we typically think about boundaries between sets of knowledge. And maybe one of the opportunities that we have now is to find new ways to crosstalk um, and to, to enter more, a more diverse and a more open-ended kind of conversation. This episode is about flatness. We ask what it would mean for architecture to flatten its disciplinary gaze, including very deep urban structures, for instance, or non-human forms of existence, or the rich life of domestic objects. So I'm here speaking today with Peter Trumer, who is the uh, professor of urban design at the Faculty of Architecture, University of Innsbruck. He also teaches uh, as part of his ongoing research here at SciArc. We're very glad to have him today because he's been doing some amazing large-scale thinking about the relationship between architecture and the city. 
What I became interested in is how to understand architecture as such. And then I became interested to realize that architecture is always to be understood in relationship to the city. Or the city is made out of architecture and architecture makes the city. So, but that's, you know, you know, that's a kind of a classical position or it has become a kind of classical modernist position, right? Because um, uh, people like um, Aldo Rossi, for instance, very famously said, it's not that that the city is made out of pieces of architecture, but that uh, architecture is basically generated by the city itself. But what became more interesting in that period was that suddenly people said, what if the city is basically the generator of architecture? It's funny, you know, that if you really look into the history of the city, you could say there is no theater without the city. There is no parliament, you know. So you could say the city is actually the generator of buildings. And of course, Lewis Mumford's argument was that civilization as a whole is generated by the city. So everything comes back to kind of the way that we settled and the patterns of living close together and the kind of negotiations and the politics and the socius involved and kind of making do with so many people crowded into very small areas. Yeah. That became my default understanding of architecture, that as more as I looked into architecture, I realized, what if the city is actually the driver that produces this kind of buildings that we are surrounded with? And of course now, um, that meant for me on the first run to look into the various ideas of how people looked into the city. How did Rossi as a realist look in the city? You know, how does Cole uh, House as a surrealist look in the city? Even somebody like uh, Colin Rowe writing oh, about like collage Rowe, cities. So like it's just this, looked at the city you know, as fragments. a formalist. Yeah. yeah. Um, even Norbert Schulz looked at it from a phenomenological viewpoint, or Jumi looked at it from a situationist viewpoint. So all of them had in common that architecture can be understood, you know, as being generated throughout the city, but each one had a different position how to look at it. I became interested in the look in the city as being a hyper-object. And a hyper-object is a term that we know from the philosopher Timothy Morton, who wrote a book where he basically explained that hyper uh, explained that hyper objects are these massively either massive in scale or massively distributed um, objects, and they really should be seen as objects. Um, he's part of the kind of speculative realist school, and he talks about things that are very very difficult to cognize from the human scale. So anything like the standing pressure wave over the Atlantic Ocean um, or, or the production of styrofoam everywhere all the time, for example. Mm -hmm. Things that we have to know are real things, even if they seem so big that it's difficult for us to think them through like that. Mm -hmm. And for you, you're saying the city is another hyper object and we need to treat it as such. I became interested in how can I explain new forms of buildings in our environment and how can we look at them, you know, and where do they come from? For example, suddenly we know that there are these data centers, you know, large, gigantic boxes, you know, of no, for non-human existence. They are just storing, you know, our data. Or then we know... We found a new one, you know, which are the pencil towers, yeah? These very thin high-rise buildings, which is just a storage of money, yeah? In a certain way, they are real estate objects. But who are the author of these entities? Where do they come from? And they are, the term hyper-object became useful for me to read the cities under that term because it suddenly means that 
as Dimitri Morton says, uh, there are things that we have created, you know, like capitalism, you know, like global warming, but the effects of them, hmm, what comes out, are beyond our control. I'm glad that you brought up those specific two examples because those are shorthands for everything that's wrong in the world. Capitalism, like late kind of rapacious capitalism on one end and global warming on the other, um, sometimes masked in the terms climate change, but really global warming um, is, uh, is more accurate. Precisely as things that are too big for us to control, too big for us to manage things that, as you say, have we've generated them, but they've escaped us now. And I wonder if that is a helpful way to think about the city. Perhaps what I saw the whole time, or my sort of uncomfortability I had yeah, with in the practice of architecture in relation to cities, you realize how strong a modernist paradigm was still there, meaning. I come, I, I see, I conquer, and I fix it, you know? <laughs> huh? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter in which area I was, it was always the same idea. I can look in this site, I analyze it, and then I fix the problem. And somehow I felt uncomfortable. And so the hyper-object idea made me, let's say, uh, gave me a new, how to say, hope of looking into the city, which means... I am not fixing something. The reality produces something. And I suddenly saw that perhaps it was always like that. Perhaps it was always like that for the one hand side, the author called the architect, but also the culture or the world or the city that produces it. Because uh, I'm not the inventor of a high-rise building. You know, I'm not the inventor of a parliament. I'm not, I'm not the inventor of a theater. Culture produces theater. But I might make a theater look like different than the other one. So this duality, there is the world huh, that gives us these forms. And then there is the called architect who gives a shape to them. So it becomes a way really to kind of focus the authorial ambition of the architect in a more useful way, right? Because if you're saying, look, I'm actually not capable of changing huge patterns here. I'm not capable of deciding in advance what kind of commissions are available to me. Then basically what you're left with is the appearance of things. And you're left with ways that you can be imaginative and ways that you can be even contrary or ways that you can be uh, productively strange within that environment. Yes, you're totally right. I got so suspicious about this authorship role of the modernist. When you look now about how do our cities work, no one knows how they work, but they are there. They give us what we all need. And so that gives us um, actually a very strange circumstance, which is this is the reality of our existence. And hyperobject is only giving me back to look at the city, you know, from that point of view. It, it's something that I have not under control, but it doesn't mean that I cannot learn something. But you also seem as well to be generating forms. I'm just thinking about some of your own design work and the design work of your students. You also seem to be generating forms that are somehow re-imaging the way that you see the city. And so this is my ongoing thing that I ask myself, can you learn from these emerging new buildings and new form of pedagogy. Yeah? And the only thing that I tried in recent years is not to design from a humanist point of view of a particular position as an author, but what if I design with buildings? What if I design a building yeah, by the viewpoint of a sun? 
Uh, what do I design a, a build a city by the viewpoint of a building? When you're saying sun, you're not talking about S O N. You're talking about S U N, and you're literally looking at what would a building be like if a building were to act like a star. What if we take a hype job like the sun, yeah, and would say, okay, what if a building is like a sun? It is not so much like a mimesis, yeah. I reproduce something we have known in nature, yeah. But it's more has to do that if I look at sustainability architecture, I always thought like, what they really mean is they want to be make a building behave as if it would be a power station. When people talk about sustainability, they seem to mostly be talking about hanging on to certain established conventions of how we live um, and the processes that we're used to, processes of consumption and production that we're used to, they don't actually seem to be thinking about how to generate excess. And when you talk about making a building that functions like the sun or like any sort of, sort of a power emitting thing, you're talking about a whole other paradigm here for how we think about what we make. You're, you're talking about, let's just change the paradigm from one of scarcity to one of abundance. I think that the planet is going to live without us, you know, it used to, yeah. Uh, to the audience, perhaps I haven't said something. It happened when the university building of Innsbruck became renovated because in the age of sustainability, uh, buildings had to be environmentally friendly, yeah, and so on. So what happened was, that the whole building became a new facade and in this facade was a window in my room mm -hmm. and when I first entered that window in my room I wanted to open this window and it was impossible because the window it had no angle to open it so there was this only button you know where it could open but in the evening suddenly all the windows opened with a motor and then they closed and opened and so it, I sort of caught them and said, how could you do a window yeah, that I cannot open? And she said, yeah, Mr. Trauma, I think you totally misunderstand. The, the window is not for you. It is for the building. You see, and that suddenly became the paradigm shift. We are not designing anymore in the modern paradigm for human beings, you know, and their uh, environment so that you look outside, fresh air, and so on. No, in the, in the case of sustainability, yeah, we design according to hyper-object. This window only exists because of some strange reason. We think that global warming becomes, let's say, the, the author for that stuff, you know, and that just turned into a kind of pedagogy. What if I look in the building from something outside, something that is larger huh, than the human subject that usually is inhabiting? Well, but also it begs the question, It's it, if you switch over from thinking about what we want and you start thinking about what other things want and the demands that they might have and you think of them as as potentially design subjects in their own right. It's actually a way of designing with instead of designing around. And so this idea, you know, that there is no pre-assumed understanding how we, you know, live in this world within our buildings and our cities, to just change them and reverse the question, I think this was helpful in the last recent years. And, and also a breath of fresh air for architect architecture as a discipline because it seems to me that architecture um, thrives on and actually needs as fuel 
new forms of imagination. And that's actually what architecture kind of eats and then spits back out into the world in other forms. We need new ways of thinking about what we do so that we can then turn those into alternative visions for what we have. And if we don't have that in any given moment in time, then all we have is the kind of technical uh, reinstitution or further institution of stuff that we already know. Those are deadly moments for architecture. The ARC was produced by Shelley Holcomb and the Southern California Institute of Architecture. Story editing by Kathy Huey at Our Story Productions. Music by James Thomas Marsh. I'm Marika Trotter. 